Scripture reading today comes from Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your disease, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good that you, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. <coughs> Two mics. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you today. Great to, to be singing with you. Great to be singing with Kevin, as always. And I'll, I'll just a little kind of program note before we get going. Um, we're going to talk about Psalm 103 today, but <clears throat> um, I had planned to, to preach on Esther and. Um, that sermon was looking sort of longish, I know, shocker. And Kevin sent me his uh, song service, and he, he had said, we're, you know, we're going to sing a little bit more than usual. And when, when I got the slides, it, my sermon wasn't thematically related to what he was, he's really talking more about the gospel and grace and God's love and that sort of thing. And also, I didn't, I, I didn't think any of you wanted to be here till 1 o'clock, so I decided to change uh, sermon topics yesterday. So... <clears throat> Um, and then as I developed this sermon, uh, what I thought would relate more to Kevin's uh, song theme, it, it became, it kind of grew and became longish. So I, this morning, I know, really crazy. This, so this morning at about 8.39, I uh, just truncated it. So I'm going to give you one point of my sermon today, <laughs> which will probably somehow manage to get us to, to me. I don't know. I don't, all right, so um, this psalm is basically a, a, a call to bless um, the Lord. Or your version may say, the NIV might say, praise the Lord. It can be translated either way. Bless the Lord, bless His holy name, bless the Lord. That's the opening from the opening paragraph. It's asking us to appreciate the mercy and the generous goodness that God pours out on us and to praise Him uh, accordingly. And this command to bless or praise uh, God occurs not only three times here in the opening paragraph, but another four times in the closing paragraph to sort of frame the whole psalm, um, to wrap the whole psalm in a kind of call to worship God, to give God praise and, and glory and blessing for all of the wonderful things that He uh, just, in His generosity, uh, bestows upon us. And that's a total, I don't know if you counted just then, if you can add three and four, that's seven. I don't want to make too much out of this. I'm not sure about this, but I know a lot of times in the Bible, uh, these numbers are, uh, are, are significant. That's probably not an accident. Seven times, perfect praise, complete and total, uh, giving glory and worship to God. That's kind of the, the ambiance of this psalm. Completely give yourself to blessing Him. Let your adoration for God be perfect. Dedicate your whole life thoroughly to praising Him. That's kind of the call of this psalm. Well, there's another theme, in addition to blessing or praising, that runs throughout this psalm, kind of concurrently, and it's another term that appears several times in the psalm, and it's the term, uh, that's from the closing paragraph there, and now I'm going back to the first paragraph. We see this term, steadfast love. That's this word, chesed, that we often talk about, that Matt has talked about in a lot of our, our, uh, the studies he's led of Old Testament texts since he's been with us. Um, it occurs like two or three hundred times uh, in the Old Testament. It's one of the most 
fundamental attributes of God. Translated in our Bibles, steadfast love in the ESV, loving kindness in some of them, mercy in others. It's kind of the idea of God's basic covenant love. Like it's a a love and devotion and adoration for us that uh, transcends circumstance. It's part of God's character and you can bank on it. And, And he's always going to have that and it's always going to be flowing from him like a fountain. And this is one of uh, several Psalms which praise God for his uh, steadfast love and call us to do the same. And so this Psalm seems to be saying, just in a nutshell, that the reason you should bless the Lord or praise the Lord with everything in your being from the inside out is because of this steadfast love that God so freely gives us. Indeed, he puts it this way, he crowns us with steadfast love. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning for a few minutes, at least one aspect of, of, of being crowned with the steadfast love of God. Do you think of yourself as crowned by God? Do you walk around and is your sort of resting uh, temperament, right? Your default disposition in a given day? I, I'm pretty much royalty in God's eyes. I'm a prince or princess. I mean, that's, that's royal language, right? He crowns us with something. And it's not the only place in the Bible. Over and over again, particularly in the New Testament a lot, we read that we are going to receive a crown of righteousness or a crown of faith or or something to that effect. And uh, I don't know that we walk around, uh, you know, with this in mind, with this uh, conviction in our gut. Probably it's in our mind. I don't know if it's in our gut, which is really what informs the way we think and act, honestly, when we're transformed at that visceral of a level. Is there a kind of spring in our step because we know that God regards us as his royal children? Is there a confidence that comes to us because of that? That we're so saturated with his steadfast love that it can be said to be our crown. It's, it's our most salient trait. When somebody sees us, they can just tell this person is confident. They're, they feel whole. They feel loved. They're the beloved of somebody really important and powerful because look at, the, look at their bearing, look at their attitude, look at the way they talk and the way they respond to other people. And look at the risks and chances they're willing to take with confidence for the cause of good, for the cause of God. Instead, we often, if we're honest, struggle to accept the steadfast love of the Lord. We often see ourselves in terms of our failures, our, our flaws, our weaknesses, the, way we, we, the ways we haven't measured up. And, and, and we do that instead of looking at ourselves through the lens of God's steadfast love. And so from this psalm, what I had planned to do this morning was talk about three reasons that he gives in this psalm that we can trust the steadfast love of God. Instead, we're going to talk about one. All right? And that one is very basic, but it's expounded upon, I think, a little, with a little more of a text. There's a disproportionate amount of the text of Psalm 103 dedicated to this reason this evidence for the steadfast love of God than the others. And that is that God's steadfast love is bigger than your sin. Because when you boil it all down, even people who don't believe in God, who don't believe in the concept of right and wrong, it's all cultural, it's all social, sin is just, you know, um, a lack of education or something like that. Even those folks, I, I think there's a fundamental human need to feel as if your life is worth something. To feel, to believe that you are offering something. That you're a good person. Not a selfish, there's no religion on earth that glorifies selfishness. Or harming other people. 
right? That's not, that's, that's ethically across the board. No matter what we're talking about, Islam, Hinduism, Christianity, Shintoism, on and on and on you can go. Uh, atheism, most atheists are going to say, yeah, I'm a good person. I'm trying to be a good person. So we'll, we'll just assume that that's the case. We're going to use the Bible word because we're believers that fundamentally our problem is sin. It's that we have diverged from God. This happens early in the biblical narrative, right? In Genesis 3. We have decided to take our own path. We are rebellious against God at worst, apathetic uh, at, at, at the best, but we ignore the one who made us. And, and uh, you know, w- without him, we really don't have any kind of uh, true identity as human beings. We're defined over against God. That's where our identity comes from. And once we detach ourselves from God, we've got really fundamental problems. And they're all sin. Here's the point. God's steadfast love is way bigger than your sin. The solution God offers is way bigger than the problem that comes out of our sin. And I think too often our our gut sensibility is uh, that God makes His love contingent upon our performance. And we've talked about that a lot here, and we will continue to because the word that we're trying to adhere to does. I don't think you can probe the dimensions of that enough as a human being. We, we have this idea that it's sort of our default mode. We, 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 we maybe could get disabused of it when we come to church and have a Bible study or something, or maybe we read something in our private devotions that, that write the ship a little bit. But the minute we leave that, uh, maybe not the minute, but an hour or two later, in the throes of life, whether it's the stresses of business or family or whatever, our default mode sort of reverts, doesn't it, to this transactional view where the basic truth is if we get things right, God will reward us with His love and acceptance and His blessings, and good things will flow, and our life will make sense. It's on the basis of our getting things right, our being perfectly obedient, perfectly holy, perfectly moral, perfectly ethical, just like Jesus. We know intellectually, right, in our head, that that's a pipe dream. And if we have the ability to read, we read it over and over and over again in the Bible. This is manifestly unbiblical. I mean, passages like Proverbs 20, verse 9, ask this question rhetorically. Who can say? What human being can say? I have made my heart pure. I am clean from sin. His point is nobody can say that. But we think, oh, I'm not supposed to have any failures, right? No flaws or failures. In in our church relationships, in our moral lives, in our ethical behavior, in our families, we nurse along this psychological and social charade of spiritual perfection until it all comes crashing on the rocks of reality. And then we're like, okay, Lord, what's going on? Well, that was never true. It might be palatable for your fellow church members it's good you can play church that way but that's never the truth about us none of us it's manifestly unbiblical so why is it so persistent in our hearts and throughout history we talked a little bit about this in our community group the other night uh, over at daniel and randy's house and and kind of brainstorm some reasons we so often revert back to that kind of uh, performance-based transactional view you might call it legalist view uh, of our relationship with god one uh, source of it probably is the theological heritage of some people. We, we inherit, in some faith traditions, a heavy dose of this transactionalism. You, you better get everything right, and the reason my church is better than yours is because we get everything right and y'all don't. So you're, if you're taught that 24-7, from knee-high to a grasshopper, you're going to probably, that's going to be your default. You were wired that way. 
And there's a lot of different faith traditions that have elements of that, and some have uh, you know, a, a real healthy dose of it. Um, unhealthy. By healthy, I mean unhealthy there. That's one of the reasons. But then you start looking at how long this has lasted. And, and in some cases predates a lot of these faith traditions. And it seems to go all the way back to the beginning because it's all over the Bible. You know, from antiquity forward. And it looks like it's more of a human thing than a certain kind of uh, you know, faith tradition or denominational thing. And maybe it's because of human pride. We, we all have this kind of pride, this sort of sense of I need to stand up on my own two feet. And while there are good things about, you know, uh, self-reliance, like personal responsibility, not mooching off people, things like that are good, they're biblical. There are a lot of other aspects of that that lead us to push back against the idea that, that God's favor is a free gift. We don't want to come to God empty-handed. We don't want to look like beggars. It, it hurts our pride to think, we can't bring something. And so weirdly, grace offends our sense of dignity and worth. I don't want to be needy, you know, kind of a handout person. And another thing is we, we go back to the Bible for whatever reason with these different sort of sensibilities and we begin to read the Bible too selectively because we can find scriptures that do emphasize, and there's some in this very psalm, by the way, Psalm 103, that emphasize our trying sincerely to obey God's commands, that we should try to be people of holiness and godliness. There are a lot of Bible passages on that. Well, if that's the only ones you see, and you ignore all the others, because they fit your model, or your sense of pride, or whatever it is, then you're going to start thinking, well, I've got a biblical basis for this transactional view of God. We better get it right or else. But a major point of this psalm, though God does not want us to sin, as I, as I said, you can see that in this very psalm. He calls us to, to be people who revere Him and try to keep the covenant with Him. But a major point of this psalm is that God's love is steadfast in the face of our sin. God doesn't love you any less when you sin. God could not love anybody he's ever made any more than he does. It's not hanging around contingently. He doesn't like it when we sin. There may be consequences when we sin, but he doesn't love you any less when you sin. It is steadfast in the face of your sin. And that is a major point of this psalm. Some of this grows out of the character of God. Well, all of it, in a sense, grows out of the character of God. Look at Psalm 103, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. What do you think of, if, some, if somebody just said to you out on the street, tell me, what, what's God's character? Three seconds, God's character. What traits pop into your mind? For a lot of folks, it's anger. It's wrath. It's holiness slash justice slash law enforcer. He's going to get you. You can't hide from him. He's going to get you. Right? He's like an all-knowing policeman. And judge and jury and, 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 and military and, and all the enforcement, the con from conviction to enforcement, you will be found out. If that's your net view of God, let me tell you something. That is highly unscriptural. There are pieces of God that... that that you, that you need to know about that have to do with holiness and justice. And God does admonish us and warn us about the consequences of departing from Him. But look what this psalm says. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. God's anger does not last forever, is what he's saying in verse 9. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. But I'll tell you what does last forever, what does abound, he abounds, verse 8 says, in steadfast love. He doesn't just have some on occasion. This is his fundamental trait. He's, it's flowing out of him. It's abounding, right? So the most basic thing about God is not that sinners will get their just desserts. That's not the most basic thing. That's not the takeaway, you know, let me, let me boil God down to one thing. Well, sinners are going to get it. That's not the most basic thing. Look at verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He's pretty much saying the opposite of that sensibility. If God's basic trait were, I'm going to repay everybody according to the exact thing that they deserve. They're all lawless. They're all iniquitous. They all ignore his standard. They all do what they want. They all rebel. Then everybody's blasted. Praise God, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. That's not fundamentally the truth about God. The fundamental truth isn't he's walking around getting to, to nuke you because you've sinned. It's instead that his love is so great that he removes transgressions. Moving on to the next two verses. Read about this. How much does God remove our transgressions from us? Well, he gives us a couple of beautiful metaphors. Metaphors that are just dripping with hope for me. This is one of my favorite psalms, maybe my favorite psalm in the whole Bible because of this section. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his, is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How high are the heavens above the earth? Somebody give me a number. <laughs> yeah, and what does that even mean, high? Distance? I mean, there's the how, low, sideways, you know. We've we got a different view now of where, what, where the earth is in the, in the solar system and the cosmos than ancients had. But this is, this is uh, theologically true no matter what your view of the cosmos is. You know, this is Apollo 11, what, what anniversary is it? 50th. 50th, and there's all these documentaries that I have queued up that no one in my family will watch with me. Is there a fellow nerd that can, I can, thank you. And even a couple movies. I've got, how about a movie? You know, The First Man, we haven't seen that yet. You know, with Ryan Gosling. Oh, Ryan Gosling, that changes everything. <laughs> Interested in the moon. Um, I'm not naming names. There's a lot, we got some, several people in our house right now. Anyway, um, Actually, the other night, no one, there were three other people in our house, no one would watch. It's sad. Thank you. This is from, yeah. Do you remember this? Some of y'all are too young to remember this, but maybe you've seen it. It's famous, famous photograph. This is actually from Apollo 8, a few years earlier, 1968. It orbits the Earth, I mean, sorry, or, or, orbits the moon and takes pictures of Earthrise you know, from the moon perspective, and you, and you got the, the, the take, uh, the instant take of all three of the people in the, in the uh, spacecraft. That's a long way from Earth. And that's just the moon. You know, we're, talking, we're not talking about Neptune. We're not talking about another galaxy. When you think about how God, if you're a Christian, and you're seeking God, and when you sin, you're confessing those sins to Him, trusting that he is faithful and just to forgive you those sins, which is the promise in 2 John. It's a promise from God. You're kind of calling God a liar if you don't believe it. Think about it that way. 
He promises. He's good for it. I'm faithful and just to forgive your sins if you can. If you're living that life, when you sin, here's, here's how you need to think about your, how God sees your sins. He has taken your sins so far from you that it's like looking at them from the, the lunar spacecraft from the moon. I mean, that's a long way. It's further than that. And then he says this, so far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? I mean, picture people sailing through the Straits of Gibraltar, you know, where Spain and Morocco are across from each other, you know, and, and, and going west from there. There were all kinds of crazy stories about what lay west of there for the ancients. A morass of quicksand or monsters or, you know, that you'd fall off. Just all this crazy stuff. And all these intrepid explorers begin to leave Europe and go west from there, you know, following Columbus and uh, some before him who didn't go west. They went south and so on. But at any rate, you've got, I don't know what an ancient would be thinking about this, but just a, cart, a direction on the compass from one side to the other. That's how far. How could God state this more strongly than these metaphors? And yet we walk around doubting His loving kindness. More defined by our sins and our mistakes than His grace and mercy. How do you measure God's love for you? It is steadfast in the face of our sins. And if astronomy and geography don't do the trick, how about the compassionate understanding love of a father? Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. A lot of us in here are parents. Even if you aren't a parent yet, or, or never will be, you are a child. And he, even if you didn't know your parents very well or have much of a relationship with them, I think there's something endemic to the human condition to have a longing for that and to know something about that intuitively. I really do. You know, it's like the, the, the limb that still felt after it's removed from the body. You know, sort of like that. And here's what he says. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You want to know how God's compassion and mercy are for you when you mess up? When you do something for the umpteenth time? When you do something embarrassing, or as Mike put it, silly and ridiculous? When you rebel against God? When you do something like King David did that you know is wrong and you do it anyway. And you're sailing along until somebody in the community of the faithful convicts you of it. When you're doing any of those things or maybe all the sins of omission that we are guilty of. The many things we don't do that we're called to do. You know, to him who knows to do right and does not do it, to him it is sin, the Bible says. So, think about this. How does God see you? He sees you like you see your little child. Think of holding your four-year-old child, your five-year-old child, your eight-year-old child, who's trying but getting a lot of things wrong. Right? Are you like, you're out. You're four years old. You should have known better. Who's going to do that? No, the minute they make a movement back toward what's right, the slightest apology, the slightest little juvenile ability to change things and do right, it's the sweetest thing. Your heart melts, and you're like, it's oh, come here. Come here to me. Right? Because I hope y'all are doing that. So that's the metaphor. Why does God do that? Because God knows our frame. He knows how we're constructed. He made us. 
He remembers that we're made of dust. All right. So I just want you to leave. I want to leave you with that. I think that really does help us. Um, uh, you know, it highlights some of the things that the, the songs Kevin has chosen this morning have been have been saying. So what's our takeaway here? Then we'll we'll stop. Uh, we should take great comfort, to say the least, in God's love for us. It is indeed steadfast. It's not mercurial. It's not, you know, contingent and, and you know, always changing and not reliable. It, it is steadfast. It is solid. It comes out of the character of God, who is our Father, who made us to be His children, His royal children who wear His crown. Don't let your failures or the failures of somebody else derail you in your progress toward God. The Jewish singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen, you may know the song Hallelujah that's been covered by everybody and his dog. Great song. But um, he wrote a song called Anthem that has these words in it. I think he was reflecting on the Holocaust. You know, and how it could leave a person with a kind of nihilistic view of the world. That just truth is power. Power is truth. Whoever's got the tanks, that's truth. Whoever's got the big economy, that's truth. Right? And it could leave you cynical. But here's what he says in this song, Anthem. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Love that. All right. Here's what you were missing today. We're going to talk about how God's love is more lasting than life, past our death and more powerful than any kind of opposition. That's why he's always seeking justice. Anyway, steadfast love of the Lord, which leads to the grace of, that we see at Golgotha. So uh, if there's somebody here who would like to access that grace, that means coming to Jesus Christ. Um, in faith, willing to confess your faith, repent of your sins, and be baptized for remission of sins. And that's what the New Testament says. It's very simple. But that, that what, what's, what's profound is what God, the love that led God to send Jesus to die in our place, and to invite us as the, the, the children of God back home, home and hearth of the Father who made us and who longs for our presence. His love is steadfast. Whatever you're facing, think about that as together we stand and sing.